I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I was thinking this, this week about Romans, and I think it's in Romans where Paul said that, uh, you know, uh, God is true and may every man be found a liar. And that's the funny thing when you think about man, whether it be textbooks, whether it be the newspaper, whether it be the news media, wherever man has a voice, wherever man has expressed words or opinions, you're always going to find lies. Even though we try to be as truthful as possible because we want to obey the word of God as close and as possible as we can, we end up lying. Maybe we don't mean to. But maybe we're misinformed about something, or we misspeak about something, or we have a wrong idea about something, and we end up speaking lies. Every man is found a liar. But the Word of God, for as long as I've been, you know, for as long as I've been able to read. So I'm 50 years old, so I haven't been able to read for 50 years, but you know, a little less than 50 years, maybe 45 years. I've read this word. And it's never been proven wrong. It's never steered me in the wrong direction. It's always been true. God's word is true. And it doesn't matter what subject you're talking about. You know, people say, well, you know, the Bible can't prove this, that, or the other. It's not God. It's the burden of proof doesn't, li doesn't lie with God. Because God's word has always been proven true. The burden of proof lies with man. Science has to prove to me what they're saying is true. The news media has to prove to me what they're saying is true. The government has to prove to me what they're saying is true because every man is a liar. I can't trust the words of man, but I can trust the word of God. Amen. So it doesn't matter what a textbook says or what this evolutionist says or what have you. I'm, I'm going to see what God's word says. And people say, well, you know, talking about science backing up the word of God. Well, you have to vet science. I mean, there's certain things about science that are undisputable, like one plus one equals two. There's no getting around it. There's no changing it. There's no fudging it. There's no twisting and skewing it. But when you're talking about science like the jab or science like climate change or science like whatever, they can take data and skew it and twist it in a way that fits their narrative. They can put the, the, the square peg in the round hole. They can pound it in and make you think, oh, that fits. You know, so there's that kind of science that you have to vet. Then there's science that's just undisputable. It's math. It's one plus one equal. You can't argue against that. So there, science has never gone against the Bible. True science. One plus one equals two type science. God's word is true. I'm going to trust this before I trust what anybody says about anything, and no matter what the subject matter may be. People well, the Bible's not a scientific book. Well, why not? I'm not saying it's going to teach us about, you know, like the parabolic table, the, the chemical t table, or whatever. But whatever is in the Bible is true. And if it's talking about creation, I'm going to take God's word literally. 
I'm not going to try to, to, to twist God's word to fit what man's saying about creation. I'm going to trust what God's word says. That's a bunny trail. It's not my sermon, but I just really felt compelled to say that. So we, we have gone through Genesis. Now we're beginning um, uh, Exodus. So the Torah portion for this week is called Shmot, which means names. And it's taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, going all the way to chapter 6 and the very first verse. So we're going to be dealing with uh, a lot about Moses and about Moses' early years and about Moses' life. So if I could put a title to this message, it would be Riches to Rags Fugitive. The riches to rags fugitive, which which basically describes Moses' life. He went from riches, being a prince of Egypt, adopted into the family of Pharaoh, to, you know, rags, a fugitive on the run, in the desert, and ends up becoming a shepherd, which is something Egyptians hate, which is really ironic. So, um... Again, we're, our theme is finding good in bad situations and asking the question, where's the good in that? So, have you ever been punished for doing the right thing? Yeah, I think we could all say at some point in our life, we've been punished for doing the right thing. Think of Pastor James Coates and Pastor Arthur Pulowski, who stood against the, you know, the jab narrative and just said, okay, th th what you're calling true science isn't adding up to the one plus one equals two science. You know, so we're not going to go along with this. We know this is a government power grab. We know this is just a fear-mongering tactic to put the people under subjection under a, a draconian, Luciferian type of government. So we're going to keep our church open. We're not going to people make make people wear masks if they want to. Fine, you know we're not going to you know like tell people what to do if they want to get the jab. Fine, if not, fine. You know we want to keep our church open because it doesn't make sense. You can go to Walmart with total strangers, but not go to church with people that you know, a community that's safe. So they got in trouble for doing the right thing, for standing up for their rights, their God-given rights. A woman not even uttering words, but gets arrested for bowing her head in front of an abortion clinic for a thought crime, which is something you read about in fictitious George Orwell's 1984. I don't believe he was a Christian, so therefore you can't call him a prophet, but what he wrote was pretty prophetic. We're living in 1984. We're living in that book. You know, let's say some, sometimes maybe somebody could pick up a wallet with the intent of returning it to the owner, but then somebody accuses them of stealing it because maybe this person has had a rough past. <laughs> you know, maybe they haven't been trustworthy in the past. And just because they have a wallet that's not theirs in their hand, they're automatically accused of stealing. So a lot of times people can get punished for doing the right thing. Now, Moses could totally relate for getting punished for doing the right thing in a sense. I mean, he can kind of he, he kind of knows how that feels. So, let's talk about the the the, the miraculous things that happen in Moses's life. Moses miraculously survived the slaughter of the innocent. All the baby boys were killed and he was spared. He was raised as a prince of Egypt by Pharaoh's daughter, which is pretty amazing. Because, you know, she just took pity on this Hebrew baby in a basket. And she knew it was Hebrew because the baby was circumcised. 
And he was raised, now this is, this is a total God thing. Even though he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, not having any children of her own, couldn't produce milk, couldn't lactate, right? Couldn't breastfeed him. So she needed a wet nurse. Who became his wet nurse? His very own mother. That's awesome. He was raised and nursed by his mother until he was weaned. So even though he later, after he got old enough to walk and talk, he went to live with Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh and the palace and everything, but until then he was raised by his mother. He got the foundational teachings when his mind was moldable. So he knew about Yahweh. He knew about God. He knew about the children of Israel. He knew about their history. He knew about the tribes. He knew about all these things and had a solid foundation to where he can be put in, in basically in you know, a totally pagan environment and he never forgot where he came from. He never forgot his roots. Now, he rose to a powerful position in order to do something about the plight of his people. I mean, he knows he's adopted. It wasn't kept secret from him. He knows he's not Egyptian, but yet he's living as an Egyptian prince with all the powers, rights, and privileges thereof. And so he's like, you know what? God put me in this position for a reason. I need to be an advocate for my people. So this is what he does. Let's go to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. So can you imagine, maybe Moses felt a little bit of guilt, kind of like survivor's guilt, to where he was living in the lap of luxury in Pharaoh's palace. He probably didn't have calloused hands. He probably never had to work a day in his life. He had the best of food, the best of education, the best of everything. And then in, you know, just probably within earshot and within line of sight, he saw the, his very own people living as slaves, getting rations for food, getting beat when they don't meet their quota of bricks or not doing what's expected of them, living in a ver very harsh and miserable conditions. Maybe he felt guilt over that. I don't know. I would. It would be kind of like survivor's guilt. So here in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Now it happened in those days after Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brothers and saw their burdens. He became an eyewitness to what was really going on. And it says he noticed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. One of his own people. He didn't, even though he was a prince of Egypt, even though he was royalty, even though he had power and authority, he didn't he didn't reckon himself as an Egyptian. He didn't put himself in that camp. He says, I may have power and privilege, but I'm still a Hebrew. He noticed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. It's kind of funny how we all pay attention to ethnicity. And I'm not, I'm not trying to promote racism or anything like that. We're all the human race. But isn't it funny, like if you get two people that are of the same culture fighting, it's not a big deal. Oh, well, they're just going to work out their difference. But if you have two people from two different cultures, let's say you have a Japanese guy and an Italian guy who gets in an argument and they get into fisticuffs. 
Well, there's kind of a racial, ethnic feeling there. If you're Japanese, you're going to feel more affinity for the Japanese guy and want to jump in and help him. If you're Italian, you're going to feel more affinity for the Italian guy. That's just nature. That's just natural. You know, it's like I come from Ohio and I'm, I'm not into sports or anything like that. So I don't really care about football teams or baseball teams. But there is a pride from coming from Ohio. Yeah, I come from where the Serpent Mounds are. Or I come from where there's Cedar Point and Kings Island. Or, you know, and then like you take pride in where you come from. So this is, that's all that I'm saying here is, is about, you know, Moses. He knows there's a difference. He knows he's not Egyptian. So, you know, if, if, if two Hebrews, he'd be concerned about it, you know, and he does, because you'll see later he's concerned about two Hebrews fighting. But when you see somebody who's not of your ethnicity, oppressing somebody who is of your ethnicity, you're going to, whoa, 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 hey, wait, what's going on here? So he said he noticed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So he looked around, and when he saw that there was nobody, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he rose to a powerful position in order to do something about the plight of his people, and then this happens. Where's the good in that? Now, we can say that Moses had good intentions, but carried them out in the wrong way. There is a saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We can have good intentions... But we can carry out those intentions in the wrong way and just make things worse for ourselves. So Moses had options here. He was working on emotions. He was working off of emotions, I should say. You know, because it just got under his skin that this Egyptian was beating, probably wrongfully beating a Hebrew. He's like, where's the justice? There's no justice in this. And he probably just a knee-jerk reaction flew into a rage and killed this Egyptian. Looked this way and that, killed the Egyptian. But he was a prince of Egypt. There was other course of actions he could have taken. He could have said, whoa, 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 what do you think you're doing here? Well, who do you think you are? Well, you know who I am. I'm a prince of Egypt. I'm Pharaoh's grandson. I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You stop what you're doing right now. I order you, I command you to stop. Okay, for sake of argument, let's say he didn't have the authority to do that. He could have went back and contacted somebody in authority and say, look, this isn't right. I want you to look into it. He had other courses of action. Because he was a prince of Egypt, maybe he could have legislated some things, brought things to Pharaoh's court to make a decision on to make things easier for his people. But he didn't. He acted out of emotion, out of a knee-jerk reaction, and he had good intentions, he wanted justice to be done, but he carried it out in the wrong way and committed murder. Did Moses know that murder was wrong? Of course he did. Because he was a Hebrew, but you don't have to be a Hebrew to know that murder is wrong. Even the most wicked of pagans will tell you that murder is wrong. It's just something we innately know. Chris, so, yes? Did, did he actually do it with intent? or did he just strike him and struck him so hard that he killed him? I think he had the intent to kill. I think I think there was a there was a component of the adrenaline and of justice has to be done so he was going off of emotions, but then there was a little bit of premeditativeness to it because look what the scripture says. So he looked around. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. He looked around. He wanted to make sure there was no witnesses. He wanted to make sure the coast was clear. 
if if you're just going solely off of emotion and insanity clause, right? You know, oh, I was out of my mind. You wouldn't think to look around. So he says, so he looked around, and when he saw that there was no one, he killed. So there was purpose. There was intent. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses may have known his calling, but failed to wait for God to bring him into that calling. For example, Abraham done the same thing when he's like, oh, maybe I should help God out. Maybe I understood or heard God wrong about the promise of a son. Maybe, maybe Sarah's right. I should, you know hook up with uh, Hagar, and then boom, Ishmael. And because Ishmael was born, the Hebrew people are still having issues today, residual effects from that act of disobedience, from that act of, of having good intentions, but then backfiring on them, right? So we know that the Ishmaelites, or, or, or a lot of them have become Arabs and Muslims, they're enemies of the Jewish people. So uh, we think of Lot's daughters, Lot's daughters had a good intention. When they were initially in the caves and they saw Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities on the plain destroyed, they may have literally thought the world's ending. And if we're going to repopulate the world, it's up to us. There's no other man but our father. So they get their father drunk and have Ammon and Moab, which again becomes enemies of Israel, right? So there's good intentions, but those good intentions, we carry them out in the wrong way. We don't do our, 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 a thorough investigation. We don't do all the homework that we need to do in order to make a, a, a conscious, cognitive, right decision to do the right thing. We do what we think is best. And remember in the book of Judges where it says that there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And in Proverbs where it says there's a way that seems right unto a man, but that way leads to death. So we see this being played out in uh, Moses' life. Um. Now, self-defense is one thing, but I think through the passage we could clearly see that this was murder. And we hold Moses in high esteem. He ends up becoming the lawgiver. He ends up becoming the leader uh, of the children of Israel, kind of a, the first king of the children of Israel, if you kind of think about it. I mean, he wasn't officially called a king, but he was the leader. Everybody looked up to him. He, he, he had the say-so in virtually everything. You know, so... Um, So, again, um, the taskmaster. Self-defense is one thing, murder is another. And it's kind of comforting to think that Moses was a murderer, but yet we could still look up to him. There was life after being a murderer, which means there's redemption no matter how heinous the sin. I mean, somebody could be a liar or be a thief, and that's not, big, that's not too big of a deal. We can think, oh, they can reform. But when we get to things like murder, when we get to things like sexual abuse, seems like we as humans, fallen human beings, have a line. Well, once a murderer, always a murderer. You know, once a sexual abuser, always a sexual abuser. Really? Not, yeah. How powerful is your God if he can't reform a murderer? How powerful is your God if he can't reform a sexual pervert? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it happens all the time. But we have prejudices, whether we want to admit it or not. Because I'll be honest with you. When I hear that somebody is a pedophile and they come to the Lord, I have my doubts. I don't know about that guy. But that's a natural prejudice I have 
because it just boils my blood to think that somebody would harm a child, right? And I mean, that's the lowest bottom feeders of the prison world because they get shanked. You could be a murderer, no big deal. You could be a thief, no big deal. If you're a pedophile and you're behind bars, you're going to get shanked if you're not in protective custody, right? Because they're the bottom feeders of the prison system. So there's a prejudice that sometimes we have, and I've got to realize, you know what? I'm not the judge. God is. I can inspect the person's fruit and judge them according to the word of God in righteousness, but I must believe, if I believe that God is holy, if I believe that God is righteous, if I believe that God is all-powerful, I have to believe that there is a possibility for that person to be reformed. And not only to be forgiven of their sin of murder or pedophilia or whatever, but to actually change and not be that way anymore. It's the same with, with alcoholism. And there's some people get mad at me for saying this, but I don't care because I don't go by the AA doctrine. Oh, once an alcoholic, I'm always an alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic. No, no, no. My God's big enough to deliver you from alcoholism to where you are no longer an alcoholic. You don't have to be an alcoholic for the rest of your life. Well, that's not what AA says. Well, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says you can be delivered from that. Another bunny trail, but I digress. Gosh, I'm getting so uh, fired up that my... Yeah, better skip, st stick to the script here. So... You know, Moses was a murderer, but yet we hold him in high esteem because he's Moses, right? You know, God himself cared enough for him, and he was such a righteous man after that murder, repentant from the murder, that God actually buried him himself, and nobody knows where his tomb is to this day. But let's think of the taskmaster. Yes, the Egyptian was the bad guy. Yes, the taskmaster was the bad guy. But guess what? He was created in the image of God, too. He had a he probably had a wife and a kids who missed him for supper that night. Where's daddy? Mommy, where's daddy? You know, he may have done wrong in abusing the Hebrew and beating him to the degree he did, but Moses had no right killing them. There was no justice in him killing that Egyptian and hiding him in the sand. So let's move on to uh, chapter two, verse twelve. I already read, so he looked around, and when he saw that there was nobody, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Then he went out the following day, went out the next day, and he saw two Hebrew men fighting. So he said to the guilty one, why are you beating your companion? See, Moses' blood wasn't boiled to the point that he, that he wanted to kill the other Hebrew. See what I'm saying here about ethnicity and race you know he couldn't tolerate the egyptian beating the hebrew but the hebrew on hebrew beating oh, okay well you know I'm, I'm a hebrew too i i you know i can understand getting mad at somebody and getting in a fight so you, you i don't know if you under if you can get what i'm saying was it the same hebrew that he rescued, rescued yeah. yes i believe it was I, I believe it was and that's what tradition that's says exactly because he looked this way in that and saw nobody and killed the Egyptian. So the only witness was the person he rescued. So it says, Then he went out the following day and saw two Hebrew men fighting. So he said to the guilty one, 
the one who initiated, who started the fight, who is mercilessly beating his Hebrew, fellow Hebrew. Why are you beating your companion? But the man, the guilty one, answered, listen to this. Who made you ruler and judge over us? You with your fancy Egyptian robe and fancy Egyptian crown and, and your ooh, Egyptian eye paint. Who, who made you ruler and judge over us? And then he says, are you saying you're going to kill me just like you killed that Egyptian? Well, there's gratitude for you. So he obviously did not know that Moses was a Jewish doctor. I think he did. But he looked like an Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. I think it was common knowledge that Moses, because he was, he was in the Jewish community until he was weaned. So probably to five to six years old. So everybody knew who Moses was. They knew that he was, you know, the living in Pharaoh's palace after that. So I think he knew. I think this was a slight. Oh, you may be a Hebrew like me, and just because you're wearing Egyptian clothing, you think you can tell me what to do? You think just because you're living in Pharaoh's palace, you're no better than me. You're a scuzzy little Hebrew just like me. You're just dressed nicer. So I think it was a jab. Who made you ruler and judge over us? We, we, we answer to Pharaoh. We answer to our Egyptian taskmasters. Nobody said that you're in charge of us. You're, in, you're a Hebrew just like me. A prophet is without honor in his own country. So he says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you saying you're going to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? So if Moses looked this way and that and killed the Egyptian, hid him in the sand, and nobody saw it, the only person that saw it was the person he rescued. So that's gratitude for you. Now, where's the good in that? Moses got ratted out by his own Hebrew people. He was just trying to help. He was just trying to make justice happen, to do the right thing. And he tried to do the right thing, but he did it in the wrong way by killing an Egyptian. And his own Hebrew people ratted him out. Where's the good in that? Where's the good in that? If legends are correct, it exposed future, future troublemakers. Because the two guys that were fighting, the two Hebrew guys, according to tradition, was Dathan and Abiram. They were Moses' biggest thorns in the flesh in the early years of them being out in the wilderness. They were always complaining. They were always going against Moses because they were high mucky mucks in their own tribe. And they were, they were always going against Moses and Aaron and Joshua. So it exposed future troublemakers. So there was the good in that. Also, um, it, it made Moses know for certain that what he did was wrong. He may have even th felt he was justified in killing this Egyptian. But this, even a, a slave who rats you out, recognizes what you did was wrong, even though it saved his skin, it, it reiterated to Moses that he certainly knew what he did was wrong. This whole event exposed uh, Moses' flaws and weak spots. When you know what's wrong with you, you can make a game plan on how to correct it, how to fix it. It's just like an MMA fighter. When an MMA fighter loses a match, like especially one who's been undefeated, he comes in and he's undefeated. Maybe he's fought 10 times and he's undefeated and finally he loses. 
Okay, he's got to go back to the drawing board. He's got to watch that fight over and over and over to see where he messed up, to see where his flaw is, to see where his weak point is. Did he lose because he had a bad ground game or what? Okay, let's say that was the case. I don't fight so good on my back. I fight better standing up, so I better improve my ground game. So next fight, if it goes to the ground, I can handle it. So you improve after your flaws um, are revealed. And this is what happened to Moses. This whole event exposed Moses' flaws and weak spots, showed him that he had a temper, showed him that he worked out of emotion more than rationality. So these are things he had to work on if he was going to be a good leader. So Exodus 2.15. Well, I didn't finish. Actually, I didn't finish uh, verse 14. It says, Then Moses was afraid and thought, For sure the deed has become known. Because even that guy that he rescued is the only one that witnessed the Egyptian being killed. He seems the type that would have blabbed it to everybody. Guess what happened to me yesterday? <laughs> right? So verse 15. When Pharaoh heard about it, so I'm sure that Hebrew slaves, this was the talk around the water cooler. And then Egyptian taskmasters got wind of it, who brought word back to Pharaoh. So it says, when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. Why not? Moses isn't his real flesh and blood, just an adopted, scuzzy Hebrew. So, you know, I don't care if I chop his head off. Big deal. He's not my flesh and blood. Now, if it was an Egyptian, he might have said, well, I understand, and he might have made concessions, might have spared his life. But he says, no, when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, where he sat down by a well. So that's why I entitled this, Riches to Rags Fugitive. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak, because he'd become the prince of Egypt. So he had it all, and then all of a sudden, because of the murder, he become poor, no privileges, no rights, no nothing. He was even below a Hebrew slave. He was a fugitive on the run from the law, so to speak. So he had to leave his biological and adoptive mother and give up all of his powerful position so that he could truly help his people. And Moses may have thought, well, I can't help my people now. I blew it. I royally blew it. I screwed up. Here I had all this power. I could have legislated things if I would have done this in the right way and kept my head and not lost my head in this matter. But no, and he's probably saying, okay, well, my, he my Hebrew people, it's hopeless. So even Moses might have been saying to himself, where's the good in that? Where's the good in that? Why did you allow this to happen, Lord? You could have stopped me from killing this Egyptian. You could have instructed me or led me in a, in a way. He probably tried, but Moses probably didn't listen. So here, Moses lost everything, and it looked as if Moses blew it. Kind of like Peter, after betraying the Lord. What did he do? He went back to fishing because that's all he knew. Until the Lord showed up, the resurrected Lord, and forgave him. So where's the good in Moses being a riches-to-rags fugitive? Number one, it humbled Moses. Because if you are raised as a prince of Egypt, you probably got a chip on your shoulder. I've got power. I've got authority. Don't you know who my daddy is? It's Pharaoh, right? It got him away from pagan influences in Egypt. Even though he had a good foundation and it didn't change him because he always identified as a Hebrew, who knows if he would have stayed in Egypt if eventually Egypt would have softened him and made him a little bit woke. We don't know. 
But we know that this situation got him away from the pagan influences of Egypt because whatever you're exposed to, you will become desensitized to it, whether you want to or not. You say, well, I know such and such is wrong, so because I know it's wrong, it's not going to affect me. Bullcrap. People make that excuse when they're watching TV. Well, I know there's nudity in it, but I know it's wrong, and I turn my head. Oh, I know that swearing and cussing's wrong, or I know that this person's a gay character. <coughs> so what? You know it's wrong, but the more you watch it, the more you get exposed to it, the more you get desensitized, and it becomes normal for you to see a gay character. It becomes normal for you to hear people cussing and swearing and taking the Lord's name in vain. You get desensitized to the philosophies that are taught to you in these television shows. And so whether you like it or not, you get desensitized. And I always give this illustration, but it's worth repeating. Bible college for a whole year, I never heard anybody cuss or swear. And when I come back home for the summer, I hear my first cuss word, I about fall out of my seat. I'm shocked because I haven't heard it. And I realized at that point that I become desensitized you know, when cussing and swearing, I become sensitive to it. And when I got home and heard it over and over again, I get desensitized to it. It doesn't offend me. I don't speak out against it. I don't say you shouldn't be saying that. And we, we all do that because we hear it all the time. We should be more vocal in correcting people, not being jerks about it, but just saying, hey, don't talk that way around me. Or, hey, you shouldn't be talking like that. Or, hey, there's kids present. Or, hey, I don't want to hear that. So we become desensitized whether we like it or not. So this incident looked bad, and it caused Moses to be a fugitive, but it humbled him, and it got him away from pagan influences in Egypt. And it got him alone so God could speak to him. If we're preoccupied with rulership, with power, with privilege, with work, with hobbies, with entertainment, God has a hard time speaking to us. But you get somebody who... Okay, let's just take this last round of sickness that just went. A lot of us were sick in bed for a couple days. Well, guess what? When I don't have anything to do but lay on the couch, I hear from God. I hear from God a lot clearer and a lot more than when I'm busy studying His Word, busy ministering, busy doing this, busy keep taking care of the house and doing the laundry and whatever. Because I'm preoccupied with these things, but when I have nothing to do and everything's stripped away from me, that's prime real estate for God to come in and speak. So because Moses lost his power, his privilege, everything, and he was on the run, and he was out in the Midianite desert, this got him alone so God could speak to him. This, got him, this gave him space to repent of the murder and to mature and grow and to get a greater skill set. Because at this point, all he knew how to do was be a dictator. Because that's what a pharaoh is. They're a benevolent dictator. Now, if we're to believe the extra-biblical accounts, before he went to Midian, he went to Cush and married a Cushite woman and got embedded in the Cushite army to become a general. He found another way of rulership. He knew how to administrate and be a benevolent dictator through Pharaoh. He learned how to be a military leader and st strategist by being a general in the army of Cush. And now we see as being a shepherd, he knew how to lead Israel as a gentle shepherd. So this also took the silver spoon out of his mouth and taught him how to be independent and self-sufficient. He probably had to learn, he learned how to be a Bedouin. Did Moses start any of the fires in, in 
Pharaoh's palace? No, he had servants to do that. Did he ever cook a meal for himself? Probably not. He had servants to do that. Now he's a fugitive in the desert, and he's going to be hooking up with this Midianite priest and staying with his family and becoming a shepherd. He had to learn how to do all this stuff. He had to learn how to build fires, how to chop wood, how to take care of sheep, how to set up tents. You know, so he becomes self-sufficient. He married within the Abrahamic line and not the cursed line of Canaan because Midian was one of Abraham's sons through Keturah. Egyptians are from the line of Ham. Mit, uh, Mitzrayim is a son of Ham, and Mitzrayim in Hebrew is translated Egyptian. Also, he was able to have a personal life-changing encounter with God at the burning bush. When you're brought so low and you're so humbled, maybe you used to think that you were something and you were taken down a few notches. You're humble enough to be able to hear from God. And he had that encounter with God at the burning bush. Also, the good in him becoming a fugitive, it gave him a chance for his two boys would be raised as Hebrews and not under the pagan influence of Egypt. Because when he married Zipporah, uh, the priest of Midian's daughter, he had two sons and they were raised as Hebrews without any Egyptian influence. So we see a lot of things, a lot of bad things happen to Moses some of which Moses brought upon himself, right? This gives us hope too, that when we do stupid boneheaded things, that God is loving and merciful enough that he's even going to work with our boneheaded decisions and something good is going to come out of it. So that's something that we can, that we can take solace in. So Moses had to make, he, he made his bed so he had to lie in it. He killed someone, so therefore he had to be a fugitive. He had to be on the run. But those weren't necessarily a bad thing. God used it and turned it around for good. It made him a humble, self-sufficient man, gave him experience to be the leader he needed to be. And see, when he thought it was all over, when he thought that there was no chance for him to do any good of any kind for his Hebrew people, boom, he has the opportunity to do that. Same with Peter. He screwed up to the point, oh, how could I ever be an apostle? I got to be a fisherman. I did the worst thing you could do. I betrayed, I just, I betrayed the Lord. But yet the Lord forgave him and he became, you know, where Jesus said to him, upon your confession of faith, Peter, upon this rock of confession of faith, I'm going to build my church. <laughs> right? So he became a, a leader within the first century believers. He went from being a fugitive, so to speak, and made the stupid boneheaded. We God, God is, is for the underdog. He's for the redemption story. God is a sucker for redemption story, so to speak. He likes to take what people think are, is useless, dumb, worthless, and make something out of it. Paul says God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He did that with Peter. He did that with Moses. Nobody would have ever, I mean, if, if, if you were a betting man and you were just taking this from a human perspective, you'd say, man, Moses' life is over. He's just going to be a shepherd the rest of his life. You know, there's ne he's never going to climb his way back to the top after this. And that would be a logical conclusion. But God supernaturally is in the mix. And he took Moses from being a fugitive and made him a leader again. So much so, he was a prince of Egypt, right? Therefore, he was a few steps below Pharaoh. 
But when he became Moses, the leader of the children of Israel, and he came back, what did God say about Moses? He says, you're going to be like a God to Pharaoh. Which means Moses was above Pharaoh at that moment. Because Moses, through the power of God, could do things that Pharaoh couldn't do. His, even magicians couldn't do. He says, you're going to be like a deity to Pharaoh. And Aaron is going to be like your prophet. So from the very bottom of the barrel, and here Moses is back at the top again. And it's all because of God. Where's the good in that? God takes things and turns them around for the good. Like Romans 8.28 says, you know. He works all things together for good for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So it's never over until it's over. You may think it's over, but God has other plans. When you think it's over, that's the perfect time to totally surrender and say, okay, God, I give up. It's, it's, it's all you now. And then just watch something amazing happen that God will do with you and with your life. Yeah. I am for what's happening. Yeah. God just opens up new doors and just said, Look, no, you're not staying here, I'm taking you here. Yeah. Just take my hand and let me leave. Amen. And I've seen miracles that. Yeah. yeah, and we've been here for some of those miracles. It's yeah. been awesome. All right. Blessing over the reading of the word, the end of the reading of the word. But the word of the Lord endures forever. For the word of God is quick. That word quick means it's alive, it has life, and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and of the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. <laughs> Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. She is a tree of life for them that lay hold upon her, and happy is every one that retaineth her. Heavenly Father, what a powerful story of redemption that we just read. Somebody who was a total, utter screw-up made an, a life-altering, life-changing decision for the worst. And yet you even took that and turned it around and made him a success. If you could do that for Moses, you can do that for us. We could say the same miraculous thing about Joseph. He was sold into slavery kidnapped and sold into slavery and if that wasn't bad enough he was falsely accused of rape and he became a prisoner which is worse than a slave everybody would have thought it was over for him there's no way of redemption he's just got to serve a sentence but no lord you took him from the dungeon and you made him second in command of egypt that's you god and if we read these stories in the bible and we know that your word is truth it's the only truth that exists in this world if you can do that for Moses and you can do that for Joseph, doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter what situation that we're in the middle of in our life, it's not over until you say it's over. And you take, you like to take these hopeless and seemingly damning situations and turn them around for our good, not just so we can benefit from it, but so you can get the glory. Because you get the glory when you use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It has your fingerprint and earmark all over it. And Lord, 
Do that with us. If you have to and if necessary, do that with us. Teach us to be submissive and humble and surrendered like Moses had to be, like Joseph had to be. Once they were humbled, once they were totally surrendered and submitted to you, that's when you shot them to the top in a very powerful, unexpected, spectacular way. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We'll be honest with you. We're not looking forward to the things that are coming down the pike. But if that means we're going to see miracles, we got our front row seat to the end of days and it's going to be a humdinger. It's going to be spectacular because, Lord, you're going to teach us how to depend on you. We're going to see you do amazing things and our faith is going to be built so strong and solid that nothing, nothing can, can hamper it or, or nothing. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.